0: Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together.
1: Let's just open in prayer, shall we, this morning. So, Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you this morning that you were there to nudge us, to wake us up. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you put the air in our lungs so yes,
0: that Lord. we could
1: uh, come together, Lord, and just worship you, worship you in digging into your words. So, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for what you've deposited in me to share, Heavenly Father, and just ask you, Heavenly Father, that the uh, that hearts are open to receive what you want to speak to each and every one right now this morning and those who uh, join later lord in the name of jesus we pray amen amen so here we are we're at the uh just one chapter today we're doing numbers 33 and um i'm just assuming that you've all read it which i thank you for that um so numbers 33 is more than a list of places It's a testimony to this sovereignty of God in dealing with his people. Dr. A.T. Pearson, a well-renowned preacher and missionary said, history is his story. It's good to review the past and discern the hand of the Lord at work. God delivered his people from Egypt and brought them to Sinai where they entered into a covenant with him. Then he brought them to the border of the promised land where they refused to go in. They wandered for 40 years, then ended up on the plains of Moab. Unbelief means wasted time, wasted lives, and wasted opportunities. But God is gracious and long-suffering with his people. In his commentary, Be Counted, Worsby adds, God doesn't just write history, he plans history and sees that his plan, plan is executed. Psalm 33, verse one says this, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. When Israel didn't permit God to rule, then he overruled. Israel lost the blessing, but God achieved his purposes. No difficulty was too great for God. He opened the Red Sea to let his people march through, and then he closed it and drowned the pursuing Egyptian army. When his people were in danger, God gave them victory over their enemies. When they were thirsty, he supplied water, and each morning he rained manna from heaven to feed them. During this trek through the desert, the older generation died off and the new generation took over. Miriam died at Kadesh, Aaron died at Mount Hor, and his son Eleazar became high priest. Before Moses died, he named Josh, Joshua as his successor. But in all these changes, God remained the same and never abandoned his people. Psalm 90 verse one says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The sovereignty of God doesn't destroy human individuality or responsibility. God is so great that he is able to will us the freedom to choose, but still accomplish his purposes. What a mighty God he is. No wonder Paul wrote how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his words, Romans 11:33. Here is Numbers chapter 33 in a nutshell. Now, the, now that the Israelites at the end of their journey and ready to take the promised land, God asked Moses to record all the places they have been. It starts with them fleeing Egypt and ends up with them camping on the plains of Moab on the west side of the Jordan River. After he has journaled the journey, now God wants Moses to tell the Israelites that they must drive out the current residents. As we have read this journal about how God brought Israel to the promised land, just think what he'll do for you and me. He can take a life that can look like a mess of confusion and sculpt a masterpiece. His thoughts are above our thoughts, and his ways are above our ways. He is sovereignly moving in current history to accomplish accomplish his will. And because he is God, you don't have to understand it at all or fear what happens next. We can leave our old life and trust God to guide us in our journey through this new life. Now, as I was studying this chapter and reading all those places, I have to admit that if I studied each place, which has a significance, and then try to bring it to you in 30 minutes, I would definitely not have done this justice at all. So I encourage each one of you to really do a deep dive study in those places. But while I was reading it, I then took a second look at verse two, and it says this, Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord, and these are their starting stages according To their starting places. Did you catch that? Starting places. Moses didn't write a journal of the best and worst camping spots. He penned the starting places, new beginnings. And by the way, I'm not saying that I take lightly all that Moses wrote by hand. This is clearly a record of how God brought his people out of Egypt Egypt to the promised land. This is a litany of the Lord's deliverance of his people. So I'm going to do a little something different this morning. We're not going to do all those verses. We're just, I just want to right now focus on verse two, and then we'll go all the way down to verses 50 to 56. But before I do that, I just want to read from Exodus 13, 21 to 22. And it says this, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from from before the people. Now remember that little bit of scripture as we continue and I'll get back to it. Believe me, I will not lead you astray, pun intended. The Bible begins with four significant words. In the beginning, God. God is all about new beginnings. And even when we mess up, God doesn't give up. When sin entered and spoiled God's new beginning, it was God who stepped up and initiated a plan to take care of those sins. God said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3.15 God provided a new beginning that would result in the coming of Jesus Christ to earth to pay for our offenses, our sins. A new beginning that would require God in the form of Jesus Christ to be brutally beaten and then crucified on the cross to die. A new beginning that would have this Jesus buried in a tomb only to be raised again in three days from that very tomb. A new beginning also for Satan, because at the resurrection, satan was defeated for all time the bible you and i know is full of new beginnings god took joseph from a prison cell and made him a powerful person in egypt second only to pharaoh god took king david a man that was an adulterer and a murderer and transformed his heart into into a heart after god's the new testament is also filled with new beginnings Zacchaeus, who was a, a despised and dishonest tax collector, met Jesus and experienced a new beginning. In Luke 19:8, it says, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Peter was a fisherman content to fish, but God gave him a new beginning. And later Peter preached a one sermon where 3000 people came to Christ. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. God took Paul, the worst of sinners, gave him a new beginning. And Paul ended up writing much of the New Testament. And in today's story, we read that God took Moses, a shepherd, and used him to lead millions of Israelites to the promised land. The Bible is so much more than a book of history. The Bible is a book that shows that God doesn't hold grudges. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103, 11 to 12, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you remember that snippet of scripture we read from Exodus? It is saying that God led them. As we read read back in Numbers chapter 9, it was the Shekinah glory cloud that guided them. When it moved, the nation moved. God brought them to their new beginnings. I believe there are 40 encampments mentioned in Numbers 33. That is 40 new beginnings, and God led them to each one. Do you get it? He gives us new beginnings whenever we need a new beginning. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up or how far you have fallen. There is a good chance that you're not a murderer or the worst of sinners, as was Paul. But even if you are, God is willing to give you a new beginning, too. God began the Bible with a new beginning. He performed new beginnings throughout the Bible, and he promises to give a new beginning to anyone that is willing to receive it. Can I remind you of a new beginning that is yet to come? Revelation 21, 3 to 5 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So why do we study chapters like 33 with all of these details about where the Israelites traveled thousands of years ago and where they are going to to in Israel the answer isn't necessarily about memorizing geographical details. One of the reasons is to remember that he is guiding us and freely gives us second chances or how many we need until we reach our promised land. Micah seven eighteen says this, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the rem- remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. I've heard it said that this journey should have taken 11 days. The land God commanded them to go in and take was already theirs. They simply had to trust and obey, but this they didn't do. God will never lead us where his grace cannot provide for us and or his power cannot protect us. Indeed, the Israelites had seen the powerful hand of God at work during the plague and miracles of the Exodus. Yet like many people, they walk by sight and not by faith and their unbelief displeased God. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Their failure to believe in God's word kept them from entering the promised land. This truth has never changed. I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for God giving me new beginnings or second chances. What about you? So here's my first question for our sharing time. Have you ever had a new beginning or ever had a new beginning of significance? So we're going to move on now to verses 50 to 56. Israel is on the edge of their inheritance. They're at the Jordan across from Jericho on the plains of Moab. They concede the land that belongs to them by right of inheritance. It belongs to God and he has given it to them. They must be so excited. Before they do cross, God speaks to Moses and tells him what to tell Israel as far as what what they were to do when they crossed into the land. They needed to understand and be prepared to do this before they crossed. They were to drive out all the inhabitants and destroy all indications of idolatrous worship. They were to do this on the authority that God has already given them the land. He was taking it from the Canaanites and giving it to his people, Israel. God's instruction to them were very clear. The Israelites must take possession of the land. That seems to be the key theme. The word to take possession is used a few times. The thought in verse 51 is not if they were to cross, but when they cross, as they will. The crossing is a certainty because God said they would, and he has given the land to them. Let's look at the manner in which they are to take the land. Verse 52 says that they must drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you. The term drive out means to take possession. It is not just to displace them. As the Israelites pushed into Canaan, the inhabitants must at the same time be either pushed out or killed, resulting in Israel increasingly occupying the land area at the same time, removing or forcing out the previous inhabitants. The word is also translated inheritance. For inheritance to take effect, the owner has to die in order to pass the land to the heir, which implies the original owner, the Canaanites, had to die. God, as the owner, gives over what he had loaned to the Canaanites for a time until he was ready to pass the land on to his children, Israel. So besides the inhabitants, what was Israel to destroy? Verse 52 also says to destroy pictures, as the King James Version says, engraved stone figures, statues of idols of their making, any carved figure, God forbids the making and setting up of stone images in the land and bowing down to it in worship. The word pictures can also mean imagination, opinion, thoughts, imagery. They were also to destroy all the images made of wood or stone images that represent the God they worship. We as believers have something to learn from this divine command. There can be little progress in holiness without a radical rejection of sin. They are to demolish the high places. These uh, these were worship areas, usually a structure or some sort of a platform or even could refer to a building such as sanctuary or an altar. These were normally placed on on the heights like uh, ridges or hills. These would have been supplied with the corresponding idols and stone pillars. It would have been like a temple or a shrine. These were the places of worship. So then as they entered the land, they were to destroy the images, idols of metal, stone, wood, the places of worship, and then even the imaginations or thinking behind all of these gods. They were to destroy anything that would cause them to worship something other than God. Verse 53 says, you shall take possession of the land and settle it for I have given the land to you to possess it. God is the one who has given them the land. The thought is that it has been given already, though they have not actually taken possession of it. It is kind of like an inheritance that a person has has waiting for them at the death of the owner. The inheritance belongs to them already, though they haven't taken possession of it yet. Nevertheless, it belongs to them still. Israel was to take the land on the basis that God gave it to them. The land could not be inherited by them until they were in it. They had to claim it with their feet. Joshua 1.3 says this, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. The lesson for us, we must be in Christ before we can become heirs of God. Our bodies belong to God. We are bought with a price. I wonder if it's similar to what Paul had in mind when he speaks of not being conformed to this world. Well, Israel had to eradicate the Canaanite world so they wouldn't be tempted to be conformed to it rather than being transformed by the word of God to exterminate and destroy them. Verse 54 says that they were to divide the land according to lot, size, and tribe. This demonstrated the sovereignty of God in division of land according to verse 54. It is what is, this is what is said in the Smith's Bible commentary. In other words, dividing off the land and then casting lots to see which tribes would get which area. And then the tribes were to divide up the land and to divide it up to the families. In other words, each family within the tribe was to be given its land grant. And so this is the dividing out of the land, giving a portion of the land to everybody each family getting its own land grant, and this land was to then remain in those families perpetually. As you read in verse 55 to 56, there is a warning if they fail to do as God said. Now, why would God, God want the Canaanites to be completely exterminated and all trace of their idolatry destroyed? It could have been a judgment against the wickedness of the people of the land, but probably so Israel would not be tempted. They showed in the past that they had a problem when being tempted by sin around them. Another reason, God had to wipe out pagan societies in Canaan so that his people might move in and build a nation that would glorify God. The promised land would be the stage on which God would display his power, pour out his blessings, send his truth, and one day send his son to die for the sins of the world. So as we look into these verses, we should keep that, this in mind what it means for us. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That means they belong to us, just as Can- Canaan belonged to the people of God. They had inherited Canaan when God made covenant with Abraham. However, when the time of the the fulfillment of their inheritance came, it was up to them to go to Canaan, take possession of it. We must do the same with the promises of God. We have wonderful promises from the Lord. Second Peter 1.4 calls them great and precious promises. They are our inheritance. They belong to us. However, we must take possession of them. How do we do that? We do it the same way the Israelites did. We receive our inheritance. That is what got Israel as far as the Jordan. However, we still must go in and possess the land. What, we do that by acting on those promises. We can't do God's part, but we can do ours. We can't heal the sick, but we can lay hands on them. We can't create money when we have none, but we can give what we have and believe that God will give back to us. We can't save anyone, but we can speak a word of testimony. When we do our part, we actively possess whatever promise we have received as true. Verse 55 goes on to say, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, he who you let remain from them will be as barbs, as a barb in your eyes, as thorns in your sides, they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. A barb is more than just a speck of dust that is irritating the eye, rather, it is a far more serious thing. The idea of barbs in the eye probably means that you're quite possibly would lose your sight in that eye. So this is far more than an irritant, but would be a devastating impact on the quality of life. These thorns in the sides will be something that is constantly nagging and irritating you. Rather than bringing blessing upon Israel by being in the land of promise, it will instead be a curse. They will be constantly stressed in their new land, the complete opposite of what they would experience if they had obeyed the Lord. What God had intended Israel to do to the inhabitants of the land, instead, land will instead be done to them. Notice the personal pronouns used with the verbs. It is God who will do this. In verse 56, God said, I will do to you as I thought to do unto them. It is God who gave them the land, and if they refuse to do as God instructed them, which was to go in and take possession of the land by driving out the inhabitants and destroying everything that hinted at adultery. If they didn't do that, God will. So here's the crux of the matter for you and I. We are called to take possession of our inheritance, to drive out, put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to kill and put off sin which so easily besets us. If we don't deal with our sin, it lies at the door and will control us. We either are slaves to uh, slaves to our flesh, or our flesh is a slave to us. We must eliminate from our lives all that would tempt us to sin, as Israel was to destroy that which was in, uh, that was which is in Canaan. If we don't, it will dominate us and ruin our lives. A key point to get out of these verses is that if the Israelites fail to do do all that God has commanded, including driving out all the inhabitants, those people who are left in the land will be a problem to them. A few weeks from now, we will be studying the book of Judges. There we will learn that the Israelites did not drive out all, all the people who lived in the land and they ended up being surrounded by ungodly people. Also at this time, the Israelites forgot the promises they had made to God while Joshua was still alive. Some of the younger generation worshiped Baal and other gods and idols. God was so angry that the surrounding nations raid Israel's lands and steal their crops and possessions. And I cite Judges 1:28 and Judges 2, 6 to 15. So why is God so extreme? Why not just conquer without destroying? Why exhaust ourselves with what seems small points of moral excellence? Why is it not enough to possess the best of the land without laboring to clear all the corners? What harm could small traces of heathen do? Couldn't they have made them useful? I wanna tell you of a story that I heard. A man purchased a white mouse to use as food for his pet snake he dropped the unsuspecting mouse into the snake's glass cage where the snake was sleeping in a bed of sawdust. The tiny mouse had a serious problem on his hands. At any moment, he could be swallowed alive. Obviously, the mouse needed to come up with a brilliant plan. What did the terrified creature do? He quickly set up work covering the snake with sawdust chips until it was completely buried. With that, the mouse apparently thought he had solved his problem. Remember what I said, we must clear out all corners, not just cover the enemy or the sin. The mouse's problem did, however, have a solution that came from outside. The man took pity on the silly little mouse and removed him from the cage. No matter how hard we try to cover or deny our sinful nature, it's fool's work. Sin will eventually wake from its sleep and shake off its cover. Were it not for the saving grace of the master's hand, sin would eat us alive. In the case of the Israelites, what they failed to drive out came back to haunt them. Just as when we fail to remove from our lives what caused us to sin, that too comes back to haunt us. I'd like to add a few words from Matthew Henry. It was intended that the Canaanites should be put out of the land. But if the Israelites learn their wicked ways, they also would be put out. Let us hear this and fear. If we do not drive out sin, sin will drive us out. If we are not the death of our lusts, our lusts will be the death of our souls. It is clear that God chose Israel as his people, not because they were the most faithful, but because of his love for them. God chose to fulfill his covenant with Abraham and his descendants, bringing the children of Israel into their land, despite their many failures. While it is easy to point out the weaknesses of the Israelites, their example illustrates our need for God as well. Despite God's many blessings, we fail him too. That is why God sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to be the substitute for our sins. Through faith in him, we can have a relationship with God today as well as in eternal life. So here's my very last question. Are there any inhabitants that need to be driven out or idols removed so that you can live in your promised land? And that is it.
0: Thank you for joining us today heartstrong disciple of jesus is one who has been saved by grace and is becoming more like jesus by abiding in him learning how jesus lived and following in his ways one of the ways we are helping you become heartstrong is through the monthly training plan which breaks down how you can practice and develop your spiritual disciplines each month you will find the theme and the focus for the month a scripture to memorize a fasting and a sabbath practice all of your bible study events and schedules and links questions for personal reflection and additional recommended content for the weekend of course you have to be a heartstrong member to access this awesome resource so visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join let's become heartstrong disciples together